Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we are not left to figure out how to deal with our sin. Thank you that right now, Jesus is our high priest, and he is interceding, he is praying for us right now. And that gives us so much hope that we can hear your word without condemnation, we can receive it with humility, we can run to you and know that you'll receive us because of Jesus. So as we talk about confession, I pray that you'd lead us. Spirit of God, do what we can't do. We need you. We need your presence in this moment. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Ben. I'm one of the leaders here, and it is my joy to open up God's Word with you this afternoon. And we are in a series called Resilient Rhythms, and on the Sundays that we gather together, we've been working through spiritual practices. And so we gave this kind of analogy at the beginning of the trellis and the vine from John 15, and Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. And the the trellis is that support system for growth, for abiding in Jesus. And so we've been looking at these practices as means of connecting to Jesus, means of abiding in Jesus. And confession is another one of those practices that is going to draw us into that place of abiding with Jesus. And I'm really excited to share with you this afternoon, that may sound weird to to talk about confession and say I'm excited to talk about confession. And at first, I wasn't, right? You read through the list of, of spiritual practices in Calhoun's book, that book we've been using. You kind of look down the list, and you see stuff like Lectio Divina, and you're like, oh, that's Latin. That's got to be a cool practice. Like, I want to try that one, right? You read Labyrinth Prayer. It's like, I never heard of that one. I'd like to try that one. And what's iconography? I mean, that, that seems super fascinating. And then you get to confession, right? And it's like, well, I... I know I'm supposed to confess my sins, but practicing confession doesn't sound so fun, does it? Why, why is that? Like, why is confession so hard? Think about that question for a minute, and I'm going to poll the audience. Just think about it. Why is confession so difficult sometimes? Maybe, maybe now in your life it's not, but maybe it used to be. But maybe, maybe it still is. Maybe you know people in your life, it's really hard for them. Why is confession so difficult? Give me some ideas. Just as they come to mind, just throw them out. Why is confession hard? Yeah, you have to be honest with God. Yeah. You have to admit you're wrong. No one likes to do that, right? Afraid of the consequences. Yeah. If I reveal this about myself. What else? Yeah, scared of what people think of you. Exactly. What else? Sin is ugly. ugly. Yeah. Sin is ugly. Yeah. Well, we're going to try to talk about all those things. I tried to anticipate the answers. But I think the biggest reason why confession is hard is because confession implies sin. And sin brings shame and guilt. And shame is a really difficult emotion to deal with. Shame is hard. And so we, we cover up 
our sin. Instead of dealing with our shame, we compensate by working harder, by doing better, by hiding with religious-sounding words. Or some, especially in Western postmodern world, we decide to remove our external authority and we self-actualize, we self-determine, and we, we determine that the only person that can cause us shame is ourselves, right? We're, if we're true to ourselves, that's all that matters. But what we've discovered is that none of these things actually work. Because even if you're the measure of what's right and wrong, you fail yourself all the time, right? You fail to meet your own expectations all the time. And sociologists and psychologists have discovered that even though we're increasingly a a world of self-actualized people, the Western world, that shame is still alive and well. And that even people that say they want to be authentic According to recent studies, they have shown that their feelings of authenticity actually come from conforming to society. Isn't that ironic? But they feel more authentic when other people think they're authentic. And so they're not only in bondage to the shame of their own expectations, but also to the expectations of others. And here's what's crazy as followers of Jesus. Sometimes we experience shame from all three of those places. Shame from what we know of our sin before a holy God, shame because of our own expectations, shame because of the expectations of others. And that is why the practice of confession is so important. Because the practice of confession not only helps us deal with real sin and guilt, it also helps us deal with false shame that we're never supposed to bear. You see, God's story is radically, deeply, embarrassingly honest about sin because it is radically, deeply, and wonderfully clear that sin does not have the last word. And we're going to find with confession, as I said, that we're not only going to experience freedom from true guilt that the Spirit brings, but also from false shame. And more important than that, we're going to find that confession is not just about sin. It's about tracing our desires back to God. We've, we've used that phrase several times, right? The same is true with confession. Confession is about tracing our desires back to God and finding joy in Him. So I want you to go with me on a little journey through Psalm 32. It's this beautiful expression of confession. And we're just going to answer three questions. Why confess and why the practice of confession? What is healthy confession? And then how do we practice confession? And we're going to get super practical there. So number one, why confession? And I love that this psalm doesn't start with the what or the how. It starts with the why. It starts with the end and then it works its way back to the beginning. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. We can bring our real sins, our transgressions to God, and experience what, frankly, is an unexpected response. Forgiveness. Covering. Our sins not counted against us. Here's the first why of confession. Confession is a gateway to enjoying undeserved grace. Now, usually when we preach 
sermons, we end with the gospel. We end with the good news, right? Well, I'm going to start with it because this psalm starts with it. And if we can get this why deeply rooted in our hearts, it makes the what so much easier. And there's these three gospel-rich words you see in these first two verses. Forgiven, covered, and count. One of them looks back in the story and two of them look forward. The word covered would remind an Old Testament reader of the very beginning of the story. Remember Adam and Eve? They're given all this amazing, these amazing gifts from God. They're placed in this garden and God says, you get everything except this one thing. And they are deceived into thinking that God is holding back from them and they disobey God. They take from that one thing and immediately there's shame. Immediately they sense that they're naked and they sew fig leaves together and they cover themselves. They cover themselves. And God comes to them and he exposes their sin and then he gives them a promise and shows them grace and he looks at their fig leaves and says, that will never do. And the first animal is sacrificed and God clothes them with coats of skin. And that sets the stage for the rest of the story of how God himself is the only one who can cover us, can cover our shame and our sin. And the next word, forgive, adds to that idea. The word forgive simply means to take away. God doesn't just cover our shame, he actually removes the cause of it. He takes away our sin. Now, how does God do this? Can God just arbitrarily take away our sin? Can he just arbitrarily remove it? And the answer is actually no. Sin is too dark, it's too deep, it's too damaging, it's too severe, it's too much of an offense to a holy God. It causes too much harm to his creation. It cannot simply be removed. To put it as severely as the Bible does, sin always demands blood. And it cannot be removed unless it is paid for or transferred to another. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, you read those sections in Exodus and Leviticus, it's just this gory, constant picture of the horrific nature of sin. And the high priest takes the sins of the people symbolically, he puts them on this animal, he takes them away and transfers them to another, and that animal is put to death. But they have to keep doing it over and over and over again. It's not enough. There needs to be something or someone who can come and take all of that sin on him and take it away forever. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. As he is outstretched on the cross, he is symbolically receiving all of our sin that's being transferred to him. And he's paying for that sin. The blood that was demanded from us, Jesus is instead supplying. And when he raises, rises from the dead, it's this loud declaration, I did it. I paid for those sins. They're not on you, they're on me. And David's third word, isn't that amazing? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And that, that sets up the third word. David says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. What does that mean? Well, again, it's not arbitrary. It's not like a teacher saying, hey, you got an F on that test, but I'm not going to count it. 
I'm just going to decide not to count it. No, Jesus took the test and he got an A+. We took the test and got an F. And Jesus said, I'll take the F, you give them my A+. It doesn't count because my test that was perfect counts. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the good news. That because Jesus took the test for us, we can receive that, accept that, and come to him in confession and believe our sins are not counted against us. Now, if you're here this afternoon and you've never done that, you've never come to Jesus and say, I, I got an F on the test, but you got an A, and I'd love to have that A that you so freely and kindly have provided by the shedding of your blood. If you've never done that, you can ask him right now. You can confess your sin and say, Jesus, I want the A plus that I don't deserve. And if you're a follower of Jesus, what confession does is bring you into that reality all over again. It's already done. You're, you're not, it's not being done again. Jesus is just bringing you into that reality. I'm using the word gateway very intentionally. Because here's our confession, okay? This is our confession. This is God's grace. There's no way that this could ever merit this. There's no way that this could ever earn this. But this confession is the gateway into experiencing this. And so we come to Jesus and we confess, not because he forgives us because of our confession. He forgives us because of Jesus, but we come to him in confession because it brings us into this reality of undeserved grace all over again. That's the why of confession. It brings us into undeserved grace. But there's more. There's more. Confession is also a gateway to wholeness and deep delight. Believe it or not, forgiveness is not the heart of the gospel. Maybe that sounds weird. Pardon, justification, those are not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is God wants us to be with him. He wants us to be in fellowship, relationship with him. And justification and pardon are what make that happen. God has to deal with the sin so he can get us, so we can be near him. And that's what this word blessed actually means. You'll notice there's no hashtag in the verse. There's no hashtag blessed. It's not this trite idea of I stumbled onto something amazing. Blessed means I'm happy in God because I'm experiencing wholeness in God. Let me say that again. I'm happy in God because I'm experiencing wholeness in God. I'm happy not because I have stuff. I'm happy because I have Him. And that's what, da what makes David say in verse 10, I'm surrounded by your unfailing love. In verse 11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad and sing. And on the flip side, look at what happens in verse 3, when you don't confess your sins. My bones wasted away. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Hiding your sin, trying to work your way out of it, work your way over it, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. But confession brings healing 
and freedom and joy because confession brings you back to God. And God in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13, he says this so well. Jeremiah 2, 12. This is what God through Jeremiah says. He's talking about Israel's sin. And he says, be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror. Now, when God tells the planets to start shaking, he's probably about to say something really important. He says, my people have committed two sins. Two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We, we said that confession, like the other practices, is tracing our desires back to God. Well, that's exactly what God's talking about. He's saying you have all these little deed desires, and you think you can satisfy them by drinking out of these cisterns, these wells. It's also the, the word used for the pits that they throw dead people in. You're drinking contaminated water, muddy water from these wells that you have dug. You think it's going to satisfy you, but it's not. I'm the only one who can truly satisfy you. And so confession very simply is saying, I don't want those wells that don't hold any water. I drink from them and they taste good at first, but then they make me sick. God, what I really want is you. What my heart and soul is really longing for is you. And you're the only one who can satisfy me and make me whole. Behind every sin is a longing for God. G.K. Chesterton famously said, every time a man knocks on a brothel door, the door of a prostitute, he is really searching for God. Because in our hearts, we are made for him. And sin is always a cheap substitute for what God himself can give us. And that is true of every sin. And this is why the practice of confession is so important. Because while we may confess sin as it comes to mind, the practice of confession, intentionally asking God to search our hearts, helps us see that sometimes we're drinking water out of wells that don't hold any water and we don't know it. We think we're drinking from the fountain, but we're actually drinking from wells that don't hold any water. And for God to kindly expose that, is so that he can bring us back to himself and show us that he can satisfy what we've been longing for all along. Chuck DeGroat says, confession is our opportunity to identify obstacles to union and reconnect to our big D desires for God. So if confession is the gateway to experience grace and joy, then you might say the practice of confession The why of it is to experience more grace we didn't know we needed and more joy we didn't know we could have. Doesn't that sound good? I want that. To know that there's more grace than I knew I needed and more joy than I knew I could have and and to realize that confession is one of the gateways to experiencing that, I want that. So with that why firmly in our hearts, let's talk about the what. What is confession? What does healthy confession look like? And as we work through these, we'll get practical. We'll talk about the pitfalls to confession. And then when we get to the how, we'll get super 
super practical. But verse 5 is the turning point in the psalm. The first what of confession is agreeing with God about your sin. Agreeing with God about your sin. Verse 5, David says, okay, I'm going I'm, I'm to open my mouth. I'm not going to cover it up anymore, anymore. I'm going to acknowledge my sin. And the idea here in the word confess in the New Testament, every, about every time it's used, it means to say the same thing, to agree with God, to agree with God. And so David uses words like iniquity, transgression, sin. In other words, David is saying, God, I agree. This is earth-shaking, soul-destroying, blood-demanding, cosmic treason against you. And you see, God's at the center of his confession. David recognizes, God, you're the one who determines right and wrong. You're the one who's able, uh, who has the right to say what's iniquity and what's not. It's not about my expectations. It's not about the expectations of others. It's about the good and wise rule of you as King God. And so agreeing with God about our sin, saying the same thing that God does, helps us with two pitfalls on either side of confession. Number one, minimizing sin, and on the other side, owning false shame. Minimizing sin is when we're unwilling to call sin what it really is. It's when in our confession to God or each other, we, we say things like, yeah, I screwed up. Or, yeah, that, that was stupid. Or, yeah, I made a mistake. Or, yeah, I struggle with that. Or in our relationship with others, sometimes we'll make these uh, pseudo-apologies, right? I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. Or if, if you were hurt, forgive me. Often I think we make those apologies so that we can go back and say, I apologized. Not because we actually feel the weight of our sin. And so these statements about sin are often because we don't want to do the hard work of entering into God's presence and asking him, what, what is this? What is this all about? And just to say it frankly, Jesus didn't die for stupidity, right? He didn't die for mistakes. He died for sin. And so when we talk about our sin, let's, let's call it what it is. In our home, my wife and I, we're still a work in progress, but we work really hard at not just saying I'm sorry. We work hard at saying please forgive me for and saying the actual sin that we committed. So instead of saying, oh, that was stupid what I said, and I'm talking about me now, not her, okay? I'll try to say, please forgive me for speaking words that tear you down and don't build you up. Instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry for being frustrated, I try to say, I'm, I'm sorry for being angry and wanting my kingdom more than God's kingdom, and you felt the pain of my rebellion. Forgive me. Now, there's a dozen ways to do this. There's no formula but it starts with this honesty about what sin is. And if we really believe the gospel, if we really believe the good news of Jesus, that he died for all of our sin, then we can be honest, brutally honest about our sin and call it what he calls it. But being honest about our sin also address, addresses another pitfall, and it means you don't have to own shame that's not yours. Right? If, if we're going to say, God, what's sin and what's not, 
That means if someone's expectations are what's causing us shame or our own expectations are what's causing us shame, we can bring those to God and say, God, is this, is this really sin? Or is it simply someone's expectations being put on me or me failing my own expectations? It, it means when someone confronts us, we can humbly say, I'm going to pray about what you said and whatever part of that is sin, I'm going to own it. But I'm also going to feel the freedom to release it if the Father shows me that's not sin. And it also means, and it also means for those that have experienced trauma and abuse and severely broken relationships, you don't have to own the guilt of those who sinned against you. It is not yours to own. And often the filth of other people tends to rub off on us and we feel like we have to own that shame as our own. But the freedom that this passage and the whole Bible gives us is that if, if God calls it sin, we can call it sin. But if he doesn't, we don't have to own sin and shame that's not ours. We own our own sin. We own our own guilt. And we let those who've sinned against us own their sin and guilt. And this, this is what makes the practice of confession so beautifully, honestly, because sometimes it's mixed, right? Sometimes it's just a big old ball of mess. Sometimes it's our own shame, it's others, it's we don't know what it is. And we just bring it to God and say, God, I don't know what's sin and what's not. I don't know what's my shame, what's the Spirit of God word. I just don't know, but I'm going to come to you and ask you to show me. Make it clear to me. Help me say the same thing as you, God. So we say the same thing as God, we agree with God, but then second, we receive his lavish forgiveness. Verse 5 ends very simply with this super confident declaration. David says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The arrow's not an accident. There's a period there at the end of that sentence, not a question mark. It's a really good Bible practice, by the way. Don't put question marks where God puts periods. When God says something, let's not add a question mark to it. But I get it. I really do. I know how hard it is sometimes to receive God's forgiveness. And that's why God piles words on top of each other to make it clear. You're pardoned. Your shame's covered. Your sin's taken away. It's not counted against us. Your guilt's forgiven. And so when we confess our sin, yes, we agree with God about our sin, but let's agree with God about our forgiveness too. Let's say the same thing that God does about our forgiveness. Let's sit long enough in the presence of God to hear him say and to believe it when he says you are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. There's a couple pitfalls that we can fall into if we don't listen for God's voice. One is what I call Eeyoreism. Remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? He's always sad, like he's always something wrong with Eeyore. And that, that's just a visual symbol for morbid introspection. You guys know what that is? Navel gazing, where you're just constantly looking at your sin. You're constantly inspecting your heart for sin, that that's all you can see. All you can see is sin. It's just a vicious cycle of sin after sin after sin after sin. And that's why receiving forgiveness is so important. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. 
For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Spend more time receiving lavish forgiveness than you do lamenting your sin. Yes, lament your sin. Yes, confess it. But receive forgiveness from Jesus. The other pitfall, which is similar, is when we say, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Now, I want to be really gentle in the way I say this because I know that sometimes that's code for I've got a lot of wounds that need to be healed, a lot of trauma that I need to work through, or I need to be reconciled with someone. But eventually, if we keep saying this, what we have to come to realize is that what we're doing is we're calling God a liar. Because Jesus satisfied all the demands of our sin on the cross And God the Father looked at him and said, I am well pleased with your sacrifice. So for us to say I can't forgive myself is to say, God, I know you're pleased with Jesus, but I'm not. And there is no double jeopardy with God. You're familiar with that legal term? You can't be tried for the same crime twice, right? So if Jesus took the penalty for your sin, God can't punish you for that sin as well. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, not merciful, not gracious, he is, but he's just to forgive us of our sins. It would be unjust for God not to forgive us because Jesus has already paid for those sins. Here's the beautiful irony. (laughs) The pathway to freedom from not being able to forgive yourself is to say, God, forgive me for not receiving your forgiveness. And asking him not only to help you receive his forgiveness for not receiving his forgiveness, but also for the sins that you've committed. There's one more piece of healthy confession. I think it's the best part. Three, lock eyes and steps with your lover. Does that sound shocking? Is that shocking language? Well, that's exactly what verse 8 is talking about. Of course, the lover I'm talking about is God himself. But in verse 8, God responds to David's confession, and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you, or face to face with you. There's all this covenant love language in the psalm if you read it. Yahweh and steadfast love. And and it all paints this picture that what God is really after in our confession is to come back to that place where we lock eyes with him, with the one who loves us, and we lock steps with him, and we say, let's keep going on together. And we we listen to his voice, and our, our hearts are in tune with his hearts, his heart. And we say, I I've just wanted to be with you. It's, it's so important. Uh, this is Robert Robertson in his hymn, Come Thou Fount. He says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You see, confession is not just about hating our sin. It's about getting back to the God we love. And it's so important because one of the pitfalls of confession is to confess simply because we feel the pain of sin simply because we feel the pain of consequences or because we hate the feeling of shame. And and that's why verse 9 is here, and it's a weird verse, right? seems weird at first. It says, Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, 
but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. For some reason, I ended up with a lot of donkeys in this sermon. Eeyore, now the mule. But the idea is, you, 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 know what, you know what he's saying, right? That when you're riding a horse, and I have very little experience in this, but when you're riding a horse, the horse doesn't know to stay in the right line unless it feels the pain of the bit or your, your heel in its side. And it will, it will go the wrong way unless it feels that pain of correction constantly. And God's saying, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to get back in line simply because you feel the pain and consequences of sin. I don't want you to be a horse. I don't want you to be a mule. I want you to be the person made in the image of God that you were meant to be and come and be with me. I want you to be my lover. I want to enjoy your presence. I want you to be in such lockstep with me that the reason you leave your sin is not because it's painful, but because you miss me and because you want to be with me. And there's oh, countless times in my own life and the lives of other people that I've counseled when the goal of confession is just to get over sin, when the goal of confession is, I just want to get over porn, I want to get over anger, I want to get over bitterness, I want to get over anxiety, when, when the goal is just to get rid of sin, rarely does transformation happen. But when the goal is, I just want Jesus, and all this stuff's in the way. I can't get Jesus if I'm looking at porn. I can't get Jesus if I'm anxious. I can't get Jesus if I'm bitter and gossiping. I just want him. That's when transformation starts to happen. When we just want to be eye to eye with Jesus and everything else is in the way. That's, man, we miss that, I think, with confession. We end with the, the forgiveness part and forget he, he wants us back with him close by his side. So here's healthy confession. Agree with God about your sin. Receive his lavish forgiveness. And lock eyes and steps with your lover. All right, I want us to take a deep breath. I know I'm fire-hosed you. We still have the how, but I, I feel like we need to just take a minute and think about these three things. I'll leave them up on the screen. And just ask, ask the Spirit to show you which, which one of these three things do I struggle with? Which one of these three things do I want you, Spirit of God, to help me with? So just take two minutes. Let's listen to the Spirit. Spirit, show us. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Spirit of God, keep, keep working. Keep showing us what we need to see. If the Spirit's starting to work on your heart, make sure you grab someone after the gathering. Grab me, grab, grab one of the other leaders. We'd love to talk to you. Share it with your MC, DNA group.
All right, let me give you some practical stuff. How do we enter into the practice of confession? And I know I'm going a little long. I normally preach for 25 minutes, so I've earned a little leeway, right? (laughs) To take you a little further. So how do we enter into the practice of confession? Number one, listen for monastic bells. Now, if you haven't been here for the last several weeks, that's going to sound really weird to you. But Dawson alluded to it several times in some monasteries. They have these bells that go off at certain points in the day that that the monks hear, and then they stop and they pray. All right? So with confession, you can create your own monastic bells. You have a smartphone, right? You create your own monastic bell like some of you have done for the practice of celebration or examine. You can set a a, a tone, an alarm, to remind yourself, let me take a moment and let me say the same thing about my sin with God. Let me receive his forgiveness. Let, Let me come back and lock eyes and steps with God. But then look for those monastic bells that God creates for you in the everyday moments of life, right? Every, um, everyday moments are meant to be moments of repentance. All of life is repentance. We believe that here. And so take these everyday moments of life, like when you're taking a shower. Calhoun says that's a great time for her because as, as her body's get, getting cleansed, she's asking God to cleanse her soul. And so it's just this symbolic reminder, I need daily cleansing from God. If you still have kids that wear diapers like I do, Amanda clued me into this, this practice, this monastic bell several years ago. Diapers are a very pungent, pun intended, image of repentance, right? Our kids poop. They just do. And it's messy and it stinks and we clean it up every time. We lovingly clean them up and God does that with us. And so every time I change a diaper, not every time, but when I remember, <laughs> it's such a an amazing, stunning reminder of the fact that God so kindly cleanses me when I make a mess of things all the time and I keep doing it over and over again. Stairs, this is just a personal one, but just an example of how God can take everyday moments and turn them into monastic bells for confession. When my son Caden comes down from his room every morning, he likes to take about five to ten minutes to come down the stairs. And he will take a moment at each stair to remind me that I have a nose and a mouth or remind me that I'm carrying his elephant, remind me that he's going to see mom. Uh, he takes his sweet time. And it used to be really hard for me. I'm like, come on, we'll just get, get up. you want me to carry you? No, walk. Okay, okay. But, but now it's turned to a, into a monastic bell for me. I confess my impatience all the way down the stairs. I confess my, my idol of efficiency all the way down the stairs. Even if I'm not in that moment being impatient, God's reminding me, you probably will be today. And so now's the moment to enter into confession. And man, it's just it's turned into a beautiful moment with my son now. I engage him, and every once in a while, he wants me to hold him, and that's great because it goes faster. But we get this moment where I'm confessing as my son is walking down the stairs. So look for those everyday moments where God is creating monastic bells for you. And then two, open yourself to spirit examination. And this is where you intentionally give more space to confession than simply in the everyday life. And there's a couple ways to do that. Join confession with other practices. We've talked about Sabbath keeping Sabbath, and we talked about making space or simplifying. If you start doing those practices, God is going to show you all kinds of sin. He is. He's going to show you all these things that you're, you're attached to that you didn't know you were attached to. And it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for you to confess your sin to God and to receive his 
forgiveness. So let those moments of exposure as you're practicing those other practices become moments of confession. And then one of the things that I've started doing is as I'm reading the Bible, I mean, you can do this with the practice of Lectio Divina, is I start with celebration. I say, what in this passage moves me to celebration? That saves me from being Eeyore, okay? What in this passage moves me to celebration? But then I ask, what in this passage moves me to confess? And so I try to start, every time I open God's word, I try to do those two things. I ask those two questions. That, that's where I am at this moment. This is what, that's what I'm doing for the past six months or so. It might change. But that's one, that's one idea. As you're reading God's word, intentionally ask, how does this passage move me to celebrate? How does it move me to confess? And then you can journal through these examination passages. So passages like Psalm 139, Psalm 51, Psalm 32, the Ten Commandments. Try journaling through the Ten Commandments. That will wreck your soul for a moment. And that's why it's really important as you're doing this kind of thing that you keep going to Jesus as you journal through and God shows you how you've broken the Ten Commandments or do the Sermon on the Mount, which really gets to your heart. You gotta keep going to Jesus with that. Actually, some people suggest ripping up your journal pages when you're done or burning them as a symbolic expression of this is forgiven, this is cleansed. But that can be such a healthy exercise of confession is exposing yourself to the Spirit's input. And then as you're doing this, ask, what are the little D desires in this sin that can be satisfied, fulfilled in a big D desire for God? So listen for monastic bells, open yourself to spirit examination, and then confess in community. Now confession is, as a practice, is primarily in the presence of God. Jesus is our high priest. But the New Testament makes it clear that private confession leads to transparency in community. James 5 says, confess your sins one to another. Hebrews 10 says to provoke one another to love and to good works as you consider one another, as you know one another, which includes knowing our sins and our faults and our failures. Now, I, I know this is a sermon all itself, confession and community, right? This is like an hour sermon. So I'm, I'm just, just forgive me that I'm going to get on a soapbox for a minute. Actually, don't forgive me. I, I'm not apologizing, but allow me to get on a soapbox for just a minute and talk about three dangers of confession and community. Okay, so this is probably more of a how not than a how. All right, so here's three questions. Number one, is your community safe? Don't just confess your sins to anybody in community. You want to make sure that the person you're sharing your sins with is healthy enough to actually lead you back to Jesus. The, the best way to know if the person's healthy enough, enough is if they're doing confession the way we just talked about, right? With their own sin. If they're honest about their own sin, they're receiving Jesus' lavish forgiveness and they want to get back to God, they're probably a safe person to talk to about your sin. But make sure that the person you're speaking with is safe. Remember the story of Jesus and Simon's house? Uh, the, the woman comes, the prostitute, she's washing Jesus' feet. And Simon's like, what in the world is she doing here? That's an unsafe person, right, to confess to. And Jesus rebukes him and says, the one who's forgiven much loves much. All right? That's what creates a safe community, people who know they're forgiven much. And that helps them love others much in their sin. 
So that's a good question to ask yourself about your DNA group, about your missional community. Is it a safe place for people to come and confess their sins? Do we help them go back to Jesus? And then the second question to ask is, are you curating your transparency? Okay? I'll explain what I'm talking about. In every gospel-centered church that values transparency like this one, this church is no exception, there is a danger that we say just enough about our sin for others to think we're being transparent and humble. We'd say just enough about God for others to think that we're speaking to God about our sin, but then we don't invite other people into that. And again, I'm talking about inviting people in that you trust. And, and, And sometimes we share like a little sin so that we can hide this big sin over here, right? And people think, oh man, they're transparent, like they're sharing their sin. And it's this big thing over here that they're covering up by sharing the little thing. And so we, we actually don't want a transparent community here. We want a vulnerable community. There's a difference. Transparency is a locked glass house where you put everything that you want out in front and people see it, but no one's allowed in. Vulnerability is an unlocked glass house where you unlock it to the people you trust and say, here I am. Ask questions. Ask whatever you want because what I really want is Jesus and I'm going to need your help to get there. And so ask yourself a question. Are you curating? Are you creating a Facebook feed of your transparency? Right? Just giving people what you want them to see. And then third, kind of on the flip side, is are you codependent? This is the flip side of curating transparency where we forget that Jesus is our high priest and we confess our sins to other people in our community and they become our priests, right? And we get our affirmation and our acceptance and our approval and our sense of forgiveness from talking to another person. Maybe this can happen in your marriage, right? Where your spouse becomes your priest. Don't let that happen. Yes, share your sins with your spouse and confess them, but go to Jesus first. Jesus is our high priest, but it can also happen in our DNA groups and our missional communities, where we get our sense of forgiveness from what others think of us, and we're not okay unless someone else who's a human being thinks we're okay or, or is okay with us. That's codependency. That can happen with confession. And so one way, one question to ask is, when I leave my community, are, am I leaving with others having locked eyes and hearts on Jesus or on each other? Right? Are people being brought back to Jesus? not just each other. All right, off my soapbox. Last one, engage in detachment. This message was supposed to be entitled Confession and Detachment, but as all the other teachers discovered, you try to do more than one practice, it's really hard. But I'm just going to give you a little bit. Um, The guide we've been using by Calhoun has all these other um, connected disciplines with confession, and detachment is one of them. And detachment is simply realizing that our identity is so attached to things, people, behavior, or substances that we need intensive work. If confession is the shower, the, the daily cleansing shower, detachment is the realization that sin is often a parasite, and it latches on, and a shower isn't going to cut it. We need help to detach from a sin that has attached itself to us. 
And so there's these several other practices that are aimed at specific kinds of detachment. If you look in Calhoun's book, sobriety, that's detachment from substances. Secrecy, that's detachment from codependency and approval. Silence, detachment from noise and busyness. And then there's these two container disciplines to engage in detachment more fully. There's solitude. By container discipline, that means that you can use it for all kinds of things, not just confession, right? And so solitude is that getting, you gotta make space to do this, right? It takes time to do this kind of thing. And you gotta get alone to hear the voice of God over all the voices of everybody else. So solitude is a practice that helps cultivate healthy confession. But then on the other side of that is spiritual direction. And that's when you realize solitude, I've been spending time with Jesus, I need help. I need a trusted friend, I need a counselor, I need a therapist, I need an advisor, I need a pastor, I need a wiser, older person to help walk me through this and help me understand why in the world this sin is so attached to me and how can I get victory over it? How can I get back to Jesus? And if you read Calhoun, you'll see that she's right in line with where we started. The goal of all of these things the goal of all of these practices is to be more attached, more in tune, more in step, more in love with Jesus. The goal is not to just be detached from sin, it's to get more attached to Jesus. And so here's the why, again. Why confession? Why detachment these other practices? To engage, to experience more grace we didn't know we needed and more joy we didn't know we could have as we lock eyes and steps with Jesus. Let's pray.